Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. I've had to put up with a good bit of slagging about my Galway GEA jersey recently. Admittedly, it's been good-natured and from other Galway supporters. You're getting great wear out of that jersey, one Galwegian pointed out in Supermax. Where else? On the day of the Galway-Roscommon League final on the 3rd of April. Fast forward to Chadwick's Wexford Park 13 days later. Pat McDonough won't be too happy with you, another Galway fan mused in a reference to our team sponsor. This jersey shaming made me very self-conscious. Was it the old-fashioned collar or elbow-length sleeves? Maybe it was time to trade in my commodious nylon acrylic maroon jersey with the white Tommy Varden logo from 1998 for a snazzier, sleeker shirt. Feeling treacherous, I placed my online order for the white Galway GAA goalkeeper jersey with the maroon Supermax logo. This one featured a grey watermark design of Galway hookers on the front and back. There was a cool V-neck collar and sleeve cuffs with maroon stripes and trim. Made with high-performance Coolite fabric with catch, move and release nanotechnology that transports moisture away from the skin. Who knew? When the new jersey arrived, I ensured my Tommy Varden jersey was safely hidden away inside the wardrobe. It wouldn't be fair to allow it to witness this disloyal behaviour. I tried the goalkeeper jersey on, looked at it in the bedroom mirror, turning this way and that. It was a thing of beauty, undeniably. No, I couldn't do it. I couldn't break up with my iconic retro Galway jersey. I knew I made the right decision when I wore my old Galway jersey to the Galway Kilkenny Leinster hurling final on the 4th of June. Another Galway fan tapped me on the shoulder during the nail-biting second half. I like your jersey, he said. I have the same one at home, signed by Michael Donlan. Anyway, isn't retro in vogue at the moment? Jerseys like those worn by Galway hurling legends from the All-Ireland winning teams of 1987 and 1988 are now available to buy online. A post on the Galway GEA Facebook page recently commented that every flag has a story. Every GAA jersey has its story too. Imagine if my Tommy Varden jersey could talk. The tales it would tell. My first All-Ireland final in 1998. G-Reg cars in convoy on the old Galway to Dublin Road, festooned with flags, ribbons and stickers with Galway for Sam. Their passengers from Killanan, Killararan and Kilcurran united in this pilgrimage in pursuit of football's holy grail. A stop-off at Mother Hubbard's in Boy Valley. I bought a Dr Seuss hat to complete my ensemble. Get your hats, flags and headbands, the hawkers called out from city centre streets. Will we do it today, lads? Knots of Galway fans outside Quinns and McGrath's asked. The banter with Kildare supporters as we were swept up Jones's Road in the tsunami of maroon and white. The deafening din in the cauldron that is Crow Park as our heroes like Porrick Joyce, Michael Donlan and Derek Savage ran onto the hallowed turf. 
It was 1-5 to 5 points in favour of Kildare at half-time. My Kildare work colleague beside me was already celebrating. After the restart, Ja Fallon got a beautifully angled point. In the 39th minute, John Divoli won a free and drove it long down the field to Michael Donlan. He slipped a well-timed pass inside to Porrick Joyce. He rounded Kildare keeper Christy Byrne and struck a wonderful goal in front of an empty net. Galway were leading. Chants of Galway, Galway, Galway rang out around the stadium. Sam Maguire was now in sight. By the 50th minute, the score was 1-11 to 1-6 to Galway. Kildare cut the lead to three. Galway Hearts missed a beat when Dermot Early was going for goal in the 70th minute. There was a collective sigh of relief when Thomas Meehan intercepted it and it went over the bar. Sean Ogg de Puer's insurance point in injury time ensured Sam Maguire's return to Galway following a 32-year absence. I hugged other Galway supporters in the Canal Inn Terrace. Fans in flat caps, jester and cowboy hats swarmed the pitch despite the best efforts of the stewards. I cried when Corifen's ray silk lifted the cup and said, Thos Sam ek chok the walya. It's been 22 years since Sam Maguire's last sojourn in Galway. Porrick Joyce, our talismanic full forward in 1998 and 2001, is now the Galway senior football manager. If omens mean anything, I'm taking heart that we beat Derry in the semi-finals in those years too. If you're going to Crow Park today and you see a lady in a 1998 Tommy Varden jersey, that'll probably be me. I'll be expecting a good-natured slagging. Cruel experience has taught me to check wave conditions before venturing out for a sea swim. I consider a short wave just a little too timid and a long one way too dangerous. What I really seek is a medium wave. And truth be known, a medium wave is very close to my heart because it was via the medium wavelength of Radio Aaron back there in the 1950s that I first considered learning to swim. Being born and reared in a small Midland community far removed from the sight, sound and smell of the sea meant that swimming was never foremost in any of our minds. The Owen Ree or King's River flowed lazily through our town. It was home to reluctant trout but seldom attracted those who wished to take a dip. In those days I was an avid listener to children's broadcasts on weekday radio. The entertainment offered covered drama, storytelling and, believe it or not, drawing and painting. A children's programme presenter, Marion King, encouraged young artists to make creations and send them in for her weekly on-air competitions. 
It is with justification that envy is named as one of the seven deadly sins. I know this because I was overcome with the emotion when a school friend displayed his prize-winning certificate on their kitchen wall. His entry had been selected for mention by Marion. It hung just below the Sacred Heart picture and the perpetual lamp in pride of place. During the years when the programme aired, it is understood that there were hundreds of paintings coming into the radio station each week as part of Marion's competitions. The celebrity cook Monica Sheridan also offered basic cookery instructions to her young listeners, but somehow this never had the appeal of painting on the radio. Around the same time, a new presenter named Dorothy Dermody introduced her audience to swimming lessons on the radio. Thinking about this now, I'd love to know how she managed to pitch that idea to the programme managers. Perhaps if they understood that painting and cooking on the radio were possible, then why not swimming? She suggested that we children set up two kitchen chairs, stretch face down on them and follow the arm and leg movements corresponding to her instructions. We were to imagine ourselves in warm, gentle water and were asked to keep practising until our virtual breaststrokes were perfected. It's hard to explain what you're doing when someone walks in unexpectedly and there you are floundering on two kitchen chairs. There's no dignity no matter how you try to explain your actions. In summertime, on Sundays, Jackie Nolan's bus was parked on our town's main street. Jackie waited patiently to bring those of us with little better to do to Tremor, our nearest seaside location. We jostled to get to the back of the bus. There always seemed to be more fun there. Togs and towels and a jingle of change in our pockets and we were off in a bone-shaking rattle of blue smoke. We were never sure about the smell of the sea and our response to seaweed. The entire marine environment was alien to those of us from a rural heartland. Still, we togged off, we ran into the waves and blundered, wallowed and trashed about with all the grace of baby elephants. Dorothy Dermody's lessons now both forgotten and useless. The chilled saline world was far removed from two kitchen chairs and that imaginary warm sea. In my teenage years, I did eventually learn a few strokes. Just outside our town, the King's River twists to carve a bend in the landscape. This spot is somewhat deeper than you might expect in the otherwise torpid waters. Locally, it's known as the Pauper's Hole. I can't recall who discovered its swimming potential, but in 1967, when California invented the summer of love, we drifted to the riverbank. A magnet for boys and girls, we splashed and besported ourselves in its refreshing depths. Transistor radios hurled competing songs up into the sunshine. We were using that summer's freedom to grow our hair longer and to weave daisy chains for the girls' bracelets. Radio Caroline had now replaced our interest in Radio Aaron's children's programmes. The doors were playing Light My Fire and Cream were belting out Sunshine of Your Love. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote of the Fountain of Youth in the 5th century BC. Alexander the Great searched for it. Perhaps they looked in the wrong place. 
I believe it was there in an unlikely swimming hole outside Callan in County Kilkenny in that summer of 1967. When you stepped into the river, closed your eyes, reimagined the kitchen chairs and the radio voice from your childhood, you could at last be transported into long promised gentle waters. You relaxed, performed Dorothy's movements, and before you knew it, you found you were swimming along in the medium waves. A monstrous roar from the crowd. But it's not for a goal or a save or the final whistle. It's a roar as a player in isolation runs onto Croke Park. All-Ireland Football Final Day 1969. The team's Kerry and Offaly. The player is the famous Mick O'Connell. My father and I stood on the old Canal Terrace. A Kerry man living in Dublin, he'd brought me up to support Kerry from the time I got out of the pram. I attended my first final in 1955, age seven, Kerry beating Dublin in an iconic match. A couple of years later, a superstar emerged, Mick O'Connell. He had the grace of a ballet dancer as he soared into the sky to catch the ball. No ball was wasted, his distribution impeccable, his free-taking accurate. A mystique surrounded him. He lived on Valencia Island, rode to and from the island for training and matches shunned publicity, gave no interviews. He had won two All-Ireland medals, but overall the 1960s was a frustrating decade for Kerry, four finals lost. In 1969, O'Connell was having his best year, Steele now added to style. Kerry won the league, O'Connell starring in the final in New York, and back home qualified for the All-Ireland final against Offaly. But in the days before that final, Dramatic news from the kingdom hit the headlines. Mick O'Connell was doubtful. He was injured and hadn't been training with the team in Killarney. A sense of terror and dread entered the heart of every Kerry supporter. How could Offaly be faced without O'Connell? In Dublin, we had no news. Kerry relatives, up for the match, had no news. The newspapers and radio had no news. We went to the match with no news. We watched the minor game from our usual position on the canal terrace. Then Offaly ran onto the field to the acclamation of their supporters. Next, the Kerry team from the old dressing room under the Cusick stand nearest the canal. Cheers and more cheers, but eyes anxiously scanned the players in their unfamiliar blue jerseys. No sign of Mick O'Connell. A sense of despair. Then, after a delay, maybe 30 seconds, Maybe a minute after the other players, a figure emerged from the tunnel leading to the dressing room. It looked like O'Connell. It was O'Connell. Then the roar started, like a volcano erupting around the stadium. O'Connell would play. The roar continued, reverberating around the packed stands and terraces. It happened over 50 years ago, 
but I can still hear the roar which greeted Mick O'Connell as he ran onto the field for the All-Ireland Final of 1969. Kerry won a low-scoring, hard-fought match. Mick O'Connell had a quiet game, but in the second half he converted two long-distance frees when the game was in the balance. Kerry had finally come of age with 21 All-Irelands. Mick probably went straight back to Valencia after the game. The roar of the crowd in Croke Park. The silence of the island. My daughter left home for New Zealand. I marvelled at the fact that she would be travelling for a total of 27 hours before arriving in Auckland. It was then that my Aunt Bernadette told me about her six-week sea voyage to New Zealand as a newly professed presentation sister in 1964. In January of that year, three tea chests marked Promenade Deck Cabin 28 were loaded onto a donkey and cart bound for the railway station in Tume, County Galway. My aunt posed for a photograph alongside two other veiled sisters, all three young women nervously excited at the prospect of going on the foreign missions. Saying goodbye was no au revoir back then. There was no certainty that they would return home and see family and friends again but they longed for adventure and were full of idealism. On the road to Galway, small fields and stone walls rushed away from them in the rear window, a scene my aunt would wistfully recall when she saw huge tracts of farmland alongside hedgerows in New Zealand. The crossing from Dunleary to Hollyhead was calm and a shared box of chocolates eased their loneliness. At Southampton, the three young women boarded the Northern Star. The majestic ship that towered above them did nothing to allay their unease as they set out on their lengthy odyssey. The gangway was removed to the strains of waltzing Matilda and the sound of a bell horn followed by a short blast meant they were on their way. Having unpacked in their cabin, the sisters regarded their fellow passengers. Some were on a world cruise, while others were emigrating in search of a better life. As the monster ship ploughed through the ocean, flying fish flitted past and delighted my aunt. She was reminded of the poem by Evie Ryu, in which a cunning shark invites the naive flying fish to dine with him. Will you join me tonight? Come as you are in your shimmering blue. On the day before the ship was due in port, a few privileged passengers were invited to dine at the captain's table for what was called landfall dinner. But Bernadette was never among them. She wondered if it was because she wore nothing like a shimmering blue dress, just plain black garb.
One day, two stocky gentlemen in shorts invited the sisters to partake in a game of deck quites. Despite being hindered by their ankle-length attire and their windswept veils, the ladies took up the challenge and put on an incongruous sports display for their fellow passengers. Such exploits passed the time and distracted them from seasickness. That and chatting to the Irish cabin boys each evening. These young men promised to visit the three veiled ladies again when the ship docked in Wellington. They told my aunt and her companions how much they look forward to docking at ports, where they hope to receive letters from home from their wives, their girlfriends and their mothers. But the news from home was not always good. In these letters they learned of the birth of their children, but also of the death of loved ones. While the ship was refuelling, they rushed out to post their letters home. Sometimes, mid-voyage, the Northern Star came almost to a standstill. When a death occurred on board, the ship reduced speed, so that a body enclosed in a canvas cloth was eased slowly and with dignity into the sea. Bernadette and her fellow passengers birthed at Durban, Cape Town, Perth, Melbourne and Sydney before finally arriving in Wellington, New Zealand on the 10th of March 1964, having crossed many oceans and time zones on their six-week journey. 58 years later, my Aunt Bernadette, now in her early 80s, is back home in Galway. One day she watches her neighbour, Terry, scrape paint from a dilapidated old boat as he renovates it beautifully. She admires the transformation and he declares, this boat is going out to sea. Gangway, let's play waltzing Matilda, my aunt jokes. She tells him about the time she set sail for New Zealand on the Northern Star on the 30th of January 1964. Terry looks at her incredulously. I worked on that same ship you were a passenger on. Later, he tells my aunt how much he still longs for the sea. There and then, they make a pact. In two years' time, on the 60th anniversary of their time on the Northern Star, they will celebrate by putting out to sea in Terry's boat. And they will recite Macefield. I must go down to the sea again, for the call of the running tide is a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day with the white clouds flying and the flung spray and the brown spume and the seagulls crying. Somewhere beyond the sea Somewhere waiting for me My lover stands on golden sands And watches the ships that go sailing Somewhere beyond the sea Growing up in Newry in the late 50s 
We had a choice as to our Gaelic footballing allegiance. For the town, now of course a city, straddled the county division between Darn and Armagh. Armagh, who had narrowly lost a final against Kerry in 1953, were the obvious team to support, while those of us who almost perversely backed Darn and began raucously to roar them on, well, we were doubtless dismissed by others as youthful visionaries or madmen. But come September 1960, and both the Darn team and we who supported them were vindicated. Once regarded as definitively no-hopers, they had managed to beat Offaly in the semi-final after a hard-fought draw and replay, and were scheduled to meet no less a team than the kingdom itself, Kerry, in the All-Ireland. It is almost impossible to convey to a neutral GAA supporter the extent of the dramatic transformation in their fortunes, and in our fortunes. To have suggested back in the late 50s that Darn would end up winning an All-Ireland title, or more preposterously, two titles in a row, would be the equivalent of saying today, and I mean no disrespect to either county, that Fermanagh, or even more improbably Carlo, would be All-Ireland champions. Yet, miraculously, in 1960, the possibility was indeed a real one. Early in the morning of the September Sunday, on the afternoon of which the final was to take place in Croke Park, a group of us, all in our late teens or early twenties, boarded a special excursion train. Magic was in the air. We would be far too early arriving in Dublin and have time to kill, but for provincials like ourselves, the whole trip, like the destination itself, was exotic and precluded boredom. We had some familiarity with Belfast, some of us as undergraduates, but little knowledge or experience of the national capital, which seemed to us full of unspecified but rich promise. On arrival at Connolly Station, we made our way, in no real hurry, to Stevens Green on foot, and as we walked along the pavement beside that city park, we came opposite the Shelburne Hotel. A figure emerged from its illustrious doors and hastened across the road, seemingly to greet or allay us. It took but a moment to recognise a major literary figure, one of Dublin's sons, whom we knew from newspaper and other media coverage. It was Brendan Bean. Lads, said he. Will you have a penny for two hapennies? And he gestured towards a nearby telephone kiosk. Have to make a call. To this day I cannot fathom why he could not make the call inside the hotel. As one or two of us searched in our pockets for an elusive penny, he asked a pretty obvious question. You're on your way to the match. It hardly seemed necessary to answer him, for even though we were not quite festooned in red and black, we were clearly sporting rosettes that proudly and conspicuously displayed the darn colours. Anyway, we indicated our assent. Well, he replied, I hope you beat the stuffing out of those Kerry so-and-sos. We were a little taken aback by the vehemence of his support for darn, or rather 
his antipathy to Kerry. It was some time later that I learnt of the less-than-friendly rivalry which simmered between supporters of Kerry and Dublin. We ourselves had no such feelings of strong antipathy towards the Kerry men, but we were willing nonetheless to take Bean's remark as a happy omen. As for the match itself, thanks to a successful strategy, in large part dependent on Darren's ability on the day to neutralise the great Kerry midfielder, Mick O'Connell, we defeated Kerry by a wider margin than they had ever suffered in an All-Ireland final. As it turned out, there was to be a later reaction by Behan to Darren's breakthrough. Not long after the All-Ireland final of 1960, on a visit to New York, he disembarked from the plane wearing a rosette with what for many could only be a cryptic inscription. Up, Darren! The assembled reporters might well have felt that he was making a rather banal comment of an aeronautical nature, those with more generously endowed imaginations, that he was expressing his gratitude for reaching terra firma. I very much doubt that he had an opportunity to give them the solution to the riddle, nor the requisite information concerning Don's real achievement. They had become the first of the Northern Ireland counties to win an All-Ireland title and had done so with their own inimitable brand of stylish football. Town in the county down one morning last July. From a boring green came a sweet Colleen and she smiled as she passed Caravan. You told me to keep an eye out for Keating's bread van, to tell you immediately when it was coming down the road, and you'd give me the money to go and get a fresh loaf. I kicked my ball around the place and played marbles with the boys from the other caravans and sure forgot all about the important arrival. The fresh bread was all sold out by the time we went down to get some. Your father will be mad, my mother said. He'll have to drive into Castle Gregory now to get a loaf and he after a hard day's work. No matter, says I. Sure he can go for a pint while he's at it. I got a clip around the ear for that. Next morning, the bread was stale anyway, and we made toast from it. On this morning's programme, we heard Jersey Girl by Christina Hessian, Swimming on the Radio by Joe Carney, The Roar was by Brendan O'Sullivan, Breda Joyce's Aboard the Northern Star, Up Down, An Encounter with Brendan Behan by Brian Cosgrove, and finally Caravan, a poem by Noel King. The music was The West's Awake, sung by Lumiere, Sunshine of Your Love by Cream, The Chieftains with Three Kerry Polkas, Beyond the Sea, La Mer by Charles Trenet, and Star of the County Down by Van Morrison and The Chieftains. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon. The producer is Sarah Binchy. You can find highlights from Sunday Miscellany at rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. 
For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.